Good evening, and welcome to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle. It's February seventh, and I'm Nick Savage, and I'm Jake Langlois, and we thank you for tuning in. As always, we've got a great show for you. In the next hour, we'll hear a little bit about the debate and the controversy surrounding Amendment One, a bill that would make same-sex marriage unconstitutional in the state of North Carolina. More on that later. We've also got some opinions on the fast-paced lifestyle of the 21st century, as well as some thoughts on Darwin Day and what it means to be a member of a military family. As always, we've got eye on the arts and what's happening in the art world around Raleigh. And finally, Dave returns detailing this week's holidays. But first, let's do the weather. What's going on, Will? Thanks, Nick. I'm Will, filling in for Katie, who is currently deep in the Amazonian jungle searching for a lost idol. Today we saw a nice sample of what we'll be experiencing for the rest of the week. Tomorrow we'll see mostly cloudy skies and a few sprinkles, with a high in the upper 50s and a low around 38. On Thursday, partly cloudy and a bit cooler, with our high in the mid-50s and a low again right around 40 degrees. Friday we'll bring back a bit of those warmer temperatures, and we'll have a high just short of 60 degrees and a low of 43 This weekend will be partly cloudy with highs in the mid-50s and lows stretching down to almost freezing, so bundle up if you're going out at night. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Will. Now let's see what's happening in the news. Thanks, Nick. California's Proposition 8 was declared unconstitutional today by a three-judge panel of the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court. The proposition, which was passed by a slight majority of California voters in November of 2008, essentially bans same-sex marriage in California. Supporters of the bill are expected to appeal, and many believe the case will go before the U.S. Supreme Court. A senior executive at the Susan G. Komen for the Cure Foundation resigned today amid the ongoing scandal regarding Planned Parenthood funding. Karen Hendel, senior vice president for policy, resigned Tuesday morning after the highly controversial decision by the foundation to cut off funding to Planned Parenthood. This decision was reversed a few days later. The decision would have cut off $700,000 to Planned Parenthood for breast cancer screenings because of an ongoing controversy over Planned Parenthood. The organization has long been a target of anti-abortion activists. Three states voted for the Republican nominee today. Colorado and Minnesota both held their caucuses, and voters in Missouri voted in their Republican primary. With victories in Florida and Nevada, Romney seems to have momentum on his side. Rick Santorum and Ron Paul, meanwhile, are both hoping for stronger numbers in the Midwest. New Gingrich is not running in Missouri. Minnesota and Missouri Missouri polls close at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, while Colorado polls close at 9 p.m. EST. And finally tonight, the man who many consider to be the most popular Victorian writer and one of the most iconic authors in history turns 200 today. Charles Dickens was born on this day in 1812 in Portsmouth, England. Some of his most famous works include Oliver Twist, A Christmas Carol, A Tale of Two Cities, remain very popular to this day. Happy birthday, Mr. Dickens. For more on what's happening beyond our borders, we turn to DeAndre Jones. Thanks, Jake. A Norwegian court concluded Monday that Anders Bering Brevik, the man charged with killing 77 people last July, an attack he claimed merited a Medal of Honor, can legally be kept in custody until his trial starts in April, according to court documents. The court acknowledged that Brevik's mental health remains an issue, noting that he may not be able to get maximum possible punishment for the crimes if he's deemed insane. Even so, the court found legal basis to keep him in custody for the next two months because prosecutors have said that if Brevik is found insane, they will push for him to be confined to a mental health facility. Brevik is accused of killing eight people in a bomb attack in Oslo and 69 more in a gun rampage on nearby Utoya Island on July 22nd. It was the deadliest attack on Norwegian soil since World War II. Next, the president of the Maldives, one of the world's most popular honeymoon destinations, resigned Tuesday after a revolt by police officers leaving the normally idyllic chain of islands in chaos. 
Muhammad Nasheed was the first democratically elected president of the Indian Ocean nation in three decades. However, the former dictator of the country ironically inspired the revolt, which involved about 500 opposition supporters along with some Islamic hardliners protesting outside the army headquarters, shouting slogans. Some police officers also mutinied and joined them. Lastly, Australian authorities on Tuesday told more than 2,000 residents who had left a town at the mercy of record-breaking floodwaters to stay away until the danger had passed. The swollen Boulogne River, which cuts through the heart of, of the town of St. George in the eastern state of Queensland, reached 13.85 meters, or 45.4 feet, Tuesday morning, and was expected to peak around 14 meters later that day. Queensland has been deluged with heavy rains over the past week, even as some parts of the region are still struggling to recover from devastating floods that took place about a year ago. The flooding this year has also affected parts of the neighboring state of New South Wales. That's all we've got going internationally. Now back to you, Nick. Good evening. My guests tonight are Ryan Smith and Curtis Brown of the Vote Against Project. Mr. Brown took his degree in digital media from the AA School of Communications and currently owns and operates Curtis Brown Photography in Raleigh. He is also the executive director and photographer of the Vote Against Project. Mr. Ryan Smith took his master's in education from North Carolina State University following a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. He is a licensed professional counselor and the co-director of the Vote Against Project. Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown join me tonight to discuss the ramifications of Amendment 1, the North Carolina Defense of Marriage Amendment, which is scheduled to go before voters in May at the Republican primary. The amendment would define marriage as between a man and a woman, a definition which Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith contest on the grounds that it is not only not protective of marriage, but actually harmful to North Carolina families. We shall have more to say about Project Vote Against in due course, but I want to begin by asking Mr. Brown to explain why an amendment intended to protect marriage is actually harmful to North Carolina families. Because uh, it's to protect North Carolina families, they don't realize how much it actually does not protect all North Carolina families. They're wanting to protect a certain type of family that is between one man and one woman. Uh, detect uh, civil parents does not protect same-sex couples, doesn't protect any domestic partnerships and civil unions that we already have in the state. So, there's a lot more in the fine lines of things that people don't really realize when they're saying that they're here to protect North Carolina families. You have to really read behind the fine lines and see that it's not. Okay, so specifically, what are the consequences that could be adverse to single-parent families, to same-sex couples, and so forth? So, for example, uh, Dr. Maxine Eichner of the UNC School of Law has emphasized that Although there is a provision in the amendment which would preserve private contracts between citizens, there are concerns that there are certain contracts, uh, wills, for example, that the courts might not interpret as private contracts and that those might be subject to reinterpretation by an activist court, which is an interesting argument for, for an advocate of marriage equality to make that, you know, you want to, in a sense, guard against an amendment which could become the tool of an activist court. And I think the reality is the amendment language is so broad that we really don't know for decades if it's passed, ramifications would be. The amendment reads in full, marriage between one man and one woman is the only domestic legal union that shall be valid or recognized in the state. This section does not prohibit a private party from entering into contracts with another private party, nor does this section prohibit the courts from adjudicating the rights of private parties pursuant to such contracts. So the second sentence there, which talks about the protection of private contracts, does that not constitute a protection for people who want to enter into domestic partnerships, who want to enter into property-sharing agreements? What about an amendment to protect the traditional definition of marriage impinges upon the rights of, broadly speaking, unconventional families? Well, and Chris and I, as political experts or attorneys, but, <laughs> but uh, one of the main things to remember is that if this amendment passes, so nothing changes in North Carolina. It is exactly as it is today. Yes, but it's a preventative measure. And here we get back to the issue of the activist courts. 
you made the point that the current law already bans same-sex marriage. There is no provision for same-sex civil unions on the books right now. The concern of the people drafting the law was to prevent, to preempt, in a sense, the kind of judicial activism that has resulted in a radically changed constitution in, for example, Massachusetts. Representative Stam's example, uh, they're going to bring with them their same-sex marriages and they're going to want to get divorced and have child custody issues. And we're not equipped to handle them. So the, the concern, I think, of the sponsors of the bill, prima facie, was that there is a legal framework and it's almost certain to be challenged and likely to be invalidated. So they, they want to prevent the courts from reading something into the Constitution by going ahead and explicitly amending it. How do you respond to that? Everybody has the right to their opinion, as Representative Stan does, but um, we're activist judges, and I think a lot of people use that term, but they're interpreting the Constitution. They see... It should be interpreted. So if our Constitution doesn't specifically talk about same-sex marriage or civil unions or domestic partnerships, but it does talk about people being equal rights and interpreted in that way, and that's their, their role. But it is for all practical purposes a radical redefinition. Yes, the language of the Constitution was not explicit about marriage in the past because there was no need to be explicit. There was a, a social understanding. Now, you seem to be driving at the moral side of it, which is that it's discri- it constitutes discrimination, and that has been a central thrust of the, the opposition to the bill. I want to go ahead and dive into that if we could. A member of the Chapel Hill Town Council expressed the sentiment very neatly. She said, we're simply against all forms of discrimination. Do you agree with that characterization of the opposition movement in general? Well, I think the organization, we believe that it would be discrimination. Use a constitution to take away these kinds of rights. Some gay activist groups and other opponents of the bill have argued that a constitutional referendum should not even be in the ballpark, should not even be under consideration because it's allowing a majoritarian decision to impact the rights of a minority. Do you agree with that, or do you think this is the best process that we have for all its flaws? I agree with the fact that um, I don't think it's up for the majority to give the minority their voice. I like being it up to the people of North Carolina to decide uh, how they're going to be affected. Um, Less government control is the most important thing, and so I only agree with the fact that this is the best process and the best way that we can handle this um, decision for this constitutional amendment. But I think to add to what Curtis said, it's it's not that on this that it be gay marriage if it doesn't pass. Right. right. So isn't out of the arguments way of same-sex marriage in North Carolina? Right. It's just that's not this and the other the social sanction of a personal decision is something we do very sparingly in a free society. We don't want to go around picking out behaviors and saying, you know, you're wearing the right kind of clothes today and you're saying the right things, you have the right ideas, because that entails that we may want to suppress other things. However, there are institutions that free societies have recognized for millennia as being fundamental to the society. In fact, in some cases, more fundamental than government itself. And one of those is the traditional biological family. The civil marriage, as it's traditionally been understood, is a way of recognizing the value of what we know to be a beneficial arrangement. Nothing has ever been encoded into that law. There is no active persecution of homosexuals. There's no active persecution of heterosexual couples who want to live an unmarried relationship. There is merely a preference for the ones that we do identify as being beneficial. I have to argue that that preference then prejudicial, and it's taking away rights. I want to talk a little bit about what the Vote Against Project has been working on over the past few months. So uh, once the legislature passed, go onto the ballot, I got a group of people together that uh, really well on a team to come up with an idea of allowing the North Carolina people to express themselves uh, in form of manner. And so... As a photographer, I wanted to be able to use my talent to give voice to people that know what to do or what to say or be able to express themselves other than voting. And 
able to create an image that people can look at, ask questions, and then that person is now allowed to go and educate people on the amendment. Uh, you know, if it's for the amendment or if it's against the amendment, just educating people so they know why they're voting on this and what they're voting for. Because very big uh, ability that a lot of people are going to vote for this amendment, it actually affects their lives. Right. So thing is we want to make sure that we're educating people so they know exactly what the amendment's about and to know that they have the chance now to be able to make a change. And for the people, for our listeners at least, where should they look to next following the Vote Against Project? We're on a tour until May 8th, the state, back from Boone uh, at App State, did a photo shoot there, headed to Wilmington next on February 11th at uh, ILM uh, 3 and then we'll be heading to Chapel Hill and Durham a uh, week, and then to Greenville after that. And we're continuing to add tour dates to cities across the state. So stay tuned to our website, org for more information. Thank you, gentlemen. My guests have been Ryan Smith and Curtis Brown of the North Carolina Vote Against Project. For 88.1 WKNC, this is William Allen. Good night. We'd like to let our listeners know that we are going to take a moment next or next week we will be airing a piece that takes the issue from the side of a supporter. So be sure to tune in next week for Eye on the Triangle. As a program devoted to news and opinions, we always want to make sure we get both sides of an issue. So you know, even if you don't agree with what you heard this week, tune in next week and we'll have a rebuttal. So Sounds good. But what, what do you think about that issue personally? Well, um, I personally, I'm a supporter of gay marriage. I, I really think that, and the, the the problem with the amendment is it's not strictly just against gay marriage. It it's, it reaches more. It goes against civil unions and domestic partnerships, and so there's more to it than than people might think. Yeah, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there's already a law in the books, you know, that says that there is no gay marriage in North Carolina, um, to the best of my knowledge. And so they just want to basically make this. I think this would make it illegal to repeal that. Well, yeah, we put it in the Constitution. You could not change it, uh, which is what California tried to do, like what I mentioned earlier. And now they're trying to trying to take that to the Supreme Court. So it'll be really interesting to see where how this goes. Yeah, where this goes. If it- yeah, but uh, nevertheless, I feel like uh, despite some of the things that happened in the past, and you know the actual fact that this bill is under consideration, um, you have to say that the men supporting uh, this movement in the march. Uh, you know they're really progressive, and um, despite like the vandalisms that happened at the GLBT Center uh, in the fall, um, I feel like there are a lot of people who are really in, they're really engaged in this issue, and uh, you know they're being very progressive and trying to make it better and and to spread civil rights. So despite the adversity towards uh, the gay community, I feel like there there are a lot of people out there who who are really vocal and showing their care. report, right. their support. Yeah, absolutely. There's always, there's always, there's a place, there's a time and a place for debate. And then at the end of the day, we'll see where, where it that, takes us. Yeah, where that takes us. So, but now on to uh, Charles Darwin. Ever since he first proposed his theory of evolution over 150 years ago, this historical figure has been shrouded in controversy. As Darwin Day approaches, Mark Herring has some thoughts. Gravity affects me every day. It makes getting out of bed hard before my biochemistry class in the morning, and it certainly makes the couch potato life more appealing. But gravity is just a theory. We know just as much about this force that dictates life in our dimension, as much as we have a clear straight look into heaven. What I'm trying to say is that this world is full of uncertainties. I respect religious people. 
but I have little patience for those who use religion as an obstruction to scientific reason. My one qualm with Madison Murphy's column in The Technician, titled Evolution, Theory Not Fact, is the misunderstanding of what scientific theory entails. Nature behaves through phenomena. Whether we use science or religion to conceptualize these phenomena, they occur no matter how we feel or what we say about them. Our current understandings of science have to be theories, since nothing is conclusive. Rather than the opinion of biologists, evolution is a scientific theory. Look at the fossil record. Compare genomes. Look at the convergent pressures that selected for nearly identical wing structures in bats and birds. You fall on your face when you trip. That's gravity. This is evolution. Just because it's not sugar, spice, and everything Jesus, this theory has a lot more working for it than the archaic rationales from a book my ancient people never intended to be interpreted literally. Regardless of evolution, its critics need to address a more focal issue, which is the fear of doubt. As a student of science, and leaning more on the secular side of Reformed Judaism, I can live with doubt and uncertainty. I can live with the fact that modern science has not fully explained the core proof of gravity, but its present and impact on my life is still there. I can't, however, live with blind answers that may be wrong. If the entire spectrum of flora and fauna multiplied from pairs of two from Noah's Ark, then the domain of life would look more like an inbred boondocks than nature as we know it. I'm not encouraging anyone to abandon their faiths, but to rather inject some modern rationale into them. Never take what the Bible says at face value. There's some pretty absurd things in there. We would all be obligated to stone adulterers. Sorry, Tiger Woods. In Madison, I encourage you to jump into the sea of scientific thought for yourself and make an informed decision. You never know when someone could be writing a column on an irrelevant definition of the word theory. And if the walk up to work is physically taxing tomorrow, don't blame me. Blame the theory. From Eye on the Triangle, I am Mark Herring. That was pretty strong there, Mark. <laughs> uh, thanks. Anyway, if you ever feel overwhelmed by the fast-paced lifestyle of the modern world, well, you are on the same side as DeAndre. He's here to remind us that sometimes we just have to slow down. Ladies and gentlemen of the Triangle and Beyond, take a deep breath in and out. Next, please ponder this question. Why are people in a constant hurry? As I walk down the sidewalks of NC State, I am constantly being scoffed at and passed angrily by another walker that wasn't satisfied with my walking speed. And by walker, I mean stranger and friends of mine alike. A constant rush seems to be the diagnosis of many college students and adults. The medicine? A simple bit of relaxation and leisure. Now, I'm not asking you to lay out on the grass every day for an hour and stare into the sky, although this probably wouldn't hurt. It means that one should take their time. Leave earlier from your home or dorm room and enjoy the sights around you as you walk your daily route. Feeling adventurous? Consider taking the scenic route on your daily drive to work, going at a speed less than 45 miles per hour. It makes a world of difference. These opinions aren't just to help you relax. Putting these tips into action will also help your health. The American Institute of Stress has said that the amount of time urgency a person has is directly correlated to the amount of stress a person is under. By allotting yourself less time to do things during the day, the body is constantly kept at high anxiety and stress levels. And by raising your stress levels, you are also raising your risk for heart disease, anxiety attacks, and even sudden death. 
pushing yourself to always meet the deadline, to constantly be on time, even when being on time is not necessary, places tremendous stress on your mind and body. Letting go is the key to your success. If you cannot meet the deadline, let go and do your best. In short, slow down. Stop the routine of rushing to wherever it is you need to go. Rushing through the event itself, then rushing back home. Time urgency is one of the few problems that is 100% self-inflicted. This also means that it is 100% self-curable. With my viewpoint, this has been DeAndre Jones. In today's soundbite culture, the politics of war often supersedes the more human aspect. Here to bring us the more personal, human-centered paradigm is Mark Herring. It's been a long year since my brother deployed to Afghanistan. Since last January, I saw my brother only once for a short mid-deployment leave. And since then, it's been sporadic chat between Facebook and email. But a lot has happened within that year, and it's hard to conceptualize the transformation between then and now. Bin Laden was killed, we pulled out of Iraq, and we commemorated 10 years of boots on the soil in Afghanistan. Now that my brother, a captain in the army, is back at his home base in Germany, I can finally celebrate his return from the conflict. After reflecting on this year's deployment, I can enjoy this now with utmost celebration. But Karen Van Drummel showed me also to recognize this moment with humble gratitude. Karen is a writing assistant in the English department and she didn't have the fortune of my family. As a student journalist, I've written a lot of fluffy stories to cushion some space between the ads and the margins of the student newspaper, The Technician. However, Karen Vandermal opened up and shared with me her agonizingly sincere experience of losing her son in the same conflict my brother just left. This story really hit home for me. And unlike the stories I mentioned prior, there is nothing cushy about this one. From the tarmac of a Michigan airport on August 28th, Karen Vandermal saw her son Joseph return from Afghanistan, draped in an American flag as his family's hero. Two weeks before this moment, this reality seemed far away for the assistant in the English department's writing program. Before that, she never really expected this day would come. But as she watched her son's casket exit the plane, she finally understood the news delivered to her doorstep in the early morning hours two weeks earlier. I met with Karen in early September, and over coffee, we talked about Joseph. I prefaced our conversation that I didn't want to dwell on Joseph's death, but rather his life. For two hours, Karen solemnly kept her composure, and despite my veneer, I was losing it inside. As she shared intimate details of Joe's childhood, his reasons to join the army, and her family's military history, I was shocked by her willingness to talk about this tender topic. She said it was cathartic, and for me, her raw genuineness was heart-wrenching. Karen reminded me that there is still a war going on, and I want to wish her the utmost strength and pride to honor her son's sacrifice. For families with loved ones deployed, waiting gets old, and it often becomes routine. My brother being in Afghanistan became a fact of life, and at points I shamefully forgot about the uncertainty of everything. It was just another day in Afghanistan. But after talking to Karen, I'm more aware of how lucky my family is, and I'm absolutely honored and grateful that she shared her story with me. For that, I can more deeply appreciate this past year. It's great to know my brother's out of harm's way, 
but I still can't forget Karen's story and the emotional and human devastation this conflict has inflicted for more than half of my life. With that in mind, welcome home, brother, and thank you, Joseph Vandermill. And after 10 years, it's been announced that the U.S. forces will be drawing down their presence in Afghanistan. And now let's find out what holidays we should be celebrating today. Here's Dave with the holidays of the week. Hello, I'm Dave. Welcome to holidays of the week. Today is wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day, so make sure to give them a wave. It would seem that high fives and handshakes don't count, however, so try not to celebrate improperly. Tomorrow is opera day, so you can try to shatter some glass for yourself, or you could just listen to some opera. Thursday is extraterrestrial visitor day and read in the bathtub day, and let's hope we don't have to celebrate both of those at the same time. Friday is Plimsoll day. I had to look up what a Plimsoll was, and apparently it's the original British term for tennis shoes or sneakers, so I guess just wear some of those. Saturday is Be Electric Day, which sounds like a pretty open-ended holiday, so you can determine for yourself how to celebrate that one. Sunday is Lincoln's birthday, as well as being Paul Bunyan Day and Man Day. This might be my favorite combination this week. And finally, Monday is Get a Different Name Day, Madly in Love with Me Day, and Clean Out Your Computer Day. That should do it for this week's holidays. Thanks for listening, and go celebrate your way through the week. And uh, I would like to add that we forgot to mention Darwin Day. Uh, <laughs> as the little Darwin uh, commentarian before, uh, Sunday will be Darwin Day. So Of course, you can't forget about Darwin Day. <laughs> Not at all. And next Tuesday, Valentine's Day, Nine Triangle. Big one. Ooh, yeah. Well, it always seems there's something going on around Raleigh worth checking out. Here's Rebecca with Eye on the Arts. Hello. My name is Rebecca, and you are listening to Eye on the Arts. This past Thursday night marked the opening of Wildlife, an art exhibition sponsored by the City of Raleigh Arts Commission. The two-part exhibition features paintings by Keith Norville located in the Block Art Gallery on West Hargett Street in downtown Raleigh. For the Block 2 Street video series, artist Jeff Whetstone created Sermon to the Birds, projected in the window of the Urban Design Center on Fayetteville Street. The video airs daily from dusk to 3 a.m. At first glance, the video looks like a psychedelic film with obscure black dots moving across the screen. Upon closer inspection, passersby will note that the movements are indeed a mirrored version of the haphazard flight patterns of swallows. Filmed while in Cortona, Italy, the visuals are layered with an audio track of a reading of St. Francis' Sermon of 1222. St. Francis was known for his religious connection with nature, so the layering of the two mediums serves as commentary on the overall theme of the show. Video curator Neil Pruitt explains Whetstone's piece. Jeff Whetstone's Sermon to the Birds lights up Block 2, a blue sky in the dark of the night. A man's voice soothes bird and person alike. We are granted a moment of pause until a plane cuts through the sky. We see our love of domination over nature made one and the same, the instinct to be one of God's creatures and to lord over the earth. I was able to ask artist Jeff Whetstone about the inspiration behind Sermon to the Birds. I asked Jeff what his work says about the natural world. He said, hopefully something similar as to what St. Francis said. We are animals too. We act on instinct and instinct drives us to make culture. Then I asked how he thinks or hopes people might respond to the video. His response? They may think it is a Christian statement, 
They may think it is an environmental statement. They may trip out to the psychedelic nature of the bird flight. All three responses are completely valid. Then I asked, what is the significance of the sermon in conjunction with the sparrows? He said, St. Francis talked directly to the birds and in doing so broke up the delineation between animal and man, between culture and nature. If you find yourself walking along Fayetteville Street from now until March 26, take a moment and look for the birds. My name is Rebecca. Thank you for listening to Eye on the Arts. Hello, I'm Dave. Welcome to this week's community calendar. There will be a lecture on Walt Whitman from 2 to 3 p.m. in Caldwell M8 on Thursday. L.A. Paul will be giving a lecture on experience and temporal asymmetry from 4.30 to 6.30 on Thursday in Withers 331. The Roots and Shoots Club will be holding a meeting featuring guest speaker Meg Lohman from 7.30 to 8.30 in Fox 104 on Thursday. And of course, Witherspoon's Student Cinema will be showing In Time, The Rum Diary, and Wall-E this weekend, Thursday through Sunday. For movie times, visit their website at www.ncsu.edu. You can see more details about any of these events at ncsu.edu or at chas.ncsu.edu. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Now, for the answer to last week's riddle that we gave you, the answer was the word startling. I certainly did not get that. <laughs> anyway, uh, you would, I guess you'd take away the L, and then it becomes starting, and then you take away the T, it becomes it, and staring, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it was kind of difficult about that. <laughs> uh, we got a little easy one for you t- uh, this week's question, which is more trivia than riddle. Which single state is home to all of the following U.S. cities? Madrid, Toronto... Cincinnati, Denver, Hartford, and Norway. If you know the answer, be sure to tell us on our Facebook page. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that just made you think, let us know on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. Also, be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org. And please remember that everything you hear on here is just an opinion. Well, that's all we have for now. We thank you for tuning in. Until next week. Good night.